Welcome to Fantastical Truth from Lorehaven. This podcast is for anyone who wants to find biblical truth in fantastic stories. I'm E. Stephen Burnett. And I'm Zachary Russell, but call me Zach. This is episode one. We're launching today with the question, what if the three wise men actually wanted to crown a king? That's one of the themes from Patrick W. Carr's book, The End of the Magi. Merry post-Christmas, Zach. Yes, Happy New Year. My decorations are still up, though. I don't know if I'm following some exact liturgical tradition or not. Uh, 12 days of Christmas, I suppose, runs out, what, January 5th? 12 weeks of Christmas. Well, It's 12 weeks of Christmas. But in this case, Thanksgiving came so late in November that I I committed a cardinal sin in my faith tradition. I did not get any decorations up or gifts purchased until the month of December. I feel terrible. Nonetheless, that means that the whole Christmas season has been pushed forward. We're still a little bit Christmassy around here, and hopefully by the time you listen to this, you still have some of that Christmas spirit in your heart. We are reviewing this book, Patrick W. Carr's book. Uh, We reviewed it for the last issue of Lorehaven Magazine, the winter 2019 issue. This is actually a cover story we did, so we did a longer review than usual. I'm going to read part of that review. You'll have to get the rest at the magazine. This is a summary of the novel by Patrick W. Carr, The End of the Magi. Life should be simple if you're a member of the biblical Magi. You come out of the box once every Christmas and you get to wear a cool turban and ride on a cool camel. You get a simple quest to seek the Christ child with only some minor Herod-related villainy to make things interesting. Then you return home by a different route. So it should seem if you only read Matthew 2 and or install a nativity scene. But for young Myred, who actually lives in the Parthian Empire, reality is far more brutal. Myred is a Gentile, but the adopted son of a Jewish Magus. As Magi, they are bonded to tell the truth, seek the stars, and track the calendar left by the prophet Daniel, plotting the number of years until the Messiah finally arrives to establish his kingdom. They also counsel earthly kings, such as the Parthian ruler Phraates, Phraates, we did not get a pronunciation guide for these. Brief aside, back to the review. Unfortunately, Phraates has been influenced by the neighborhood's latest upstart empire, Rome, which results in the king enraged at certain magi's opposition to his foolish alliance, declaring treason and slaughtering nearly every magus he can find. Our hero Myrid ends up fatherless, homeless, and on the run. Restricted by his clubfoot, he soon joins the caravan of wise tradesman Walagosh and his steadfast daughter Roshan. They'll face deserts, revolutions, and the friendships and threats of other magi as they work their way toward Jerusalem and that mysterious star. That's how the review begins. You can read the complete review, plus our cover story in which we interview the story's creator, Patrick W. Carr, by subscribing free to Lorehaven Magazine at lorehaven.com. Zach, I got to read this book at Christmas. You don't have to read it at Christmas, but you've got three wise men. You've got the star. It's pretty magical. It's really fantastical. And even though the story is a historical story, there's enough of the uh, the epicness of traveling the desert and betrayals and all of that sort of thing to make it feel very much like fantasy. Carr, though, did a lot of historical research about the time period, specific names, and other facts that he dug up to make it feel very grounded in history. So you said the Parthian Empire. Where is that? That's my first question because I haven't read the book yet. So and, where where is that empire? And I would need to go back and read the book. I'm I'm in my head. I'm picturing uh, Persia. Uh, okay. Where you? I mean, oddly enough, as we record this right now, I think this general region is in the news again. So it's yeah. no stranger to 
double crossings and assassinations and such like. It's still a fairly Christmassy book, but you can read it any time of the year. Uh, spoiler alert, very mild spoiler. We'll try to avoid big ones in this podcast. The story doesn't end in this stable, so perish any thoughts of a predictable conclusion. But it's about the three wise men or the wise men. The right? wise so that, men. That time of history. Yes, okay. exactly. Yes. First century, uh, early, uh, where, well, I suppose around zero AD, however you count that, or, or did they nudge it up and now it's like three AD or something? I, I forget. Yeah. Anyway, I liked Myrid the hero or, or Myrid. Um, next time we're going to get a pronunciation <laughs> guide. Um, Patrick W. Carr, uh, from what I've seen, he, he really does well writing those empathetic fantasy heroes, just people who are generally good-willed and yet are just flawed enough to he, totally get on their side. He's mostly written fantasy. He has, yes. Okay. This, I mean, this is the most realistic kind of book that he's written. Uh, he's, he's done a, a trilogy before, and then he did a, a epic trilogy with a prequel. Like Each one of those books you know, was like 160,000 words minimum. You can get more of that information in that cover story that I mentioned. Uh, he goes into quite the process of how he got into this and Honestly, it was really hard work for him for a while, putting all that much uh, story together. Well, and you, and you said a minute ago that this book, even though it's it's historical, biblical fiction, it still had a magical, fantastical feel to it. So what gives it that feel? I think it's the star. Well, especially, you know, this is a little bit more subjective. If you were raised with a certain sense of, let's just call it magical, just, I mean, yes, Christmas is stressful, and a lot of people associate Christmas with, with pain, and people can get sick, and all kinds of other terrible things can happen at Christmas. But especially if you were a child, and you had the great blessing of being raised to show, associate Christmas with some kind of special time of the year, then any little hint of a symbol, at least for me, is going to get inside your head and kind of bring that out a little bit. In this case, it really was the star. It's, it's there. It's the, it's the star of Bethlehem. It's just visible enough in the story for you to be waiting for it to appear again. At least that's how I reacted to it. It's enough to make the miracle special when it's just waiting around the corner and not in your face the whole time. But uh, the, uh, the, the writer does keep the story as biblical as you could want, which to, to us and to many of our listeners, that's going to matter. Mm -hmm. You can go afield. You can go on a quest. You can speculate. You can go into the desert and run away from soldiers and have a flash flood and all kinds of things, but it's got to stick with scripture uh, as much as possible. At the same time, Patrick Carr challenges some of the little traditions that we have in our head about the wise men. Okay. You know, they, they just show up, they present their gifts, and then they leave. And like I said, they return home by a different route. In this case, we haven't seen the last of the wise men. They have thoughts of their own. They have ideas about the, what the Messiah is going to be um, in, in uh, Patrick's uh, speculation they've inherited a tradition of prophecies to know or pretty sure they're going to know when to expect the messiah to appear and when they do see him they want to crown him king or at least several of them do so yeah, that so really is what they're not just the there as, they're not just the amazon delivery guys no saying, they just show up for some gold and frankincense and myrrh yeah and okay. then we'll be on our way and we're vanished no the, the the benefit of fiction is that you can ask well what happened after that yeah you know, did they expect the Messiah to do anything? Were they disappointed that he was a child? Yeah. And, well, and then the story kind of goes on from there. That brings a lot of questions to my mind. Cause like, was their plan originally to just go home? Like as we read in the text or did their interaction with Herod and then the dream they had, did that just kind of throw everything for a loop? Like, I mean, that makes me wonder that right there. So I, I should probably read this book and find out, but you know, something I want to ask you about, cause I wonder if the book 
goes into this. You talk about it being as biblical as you could want. My kids have recently been talking about how, oh yeah, the the wise men didn't show up when Jesus was born. They weren't there no. in the stable. And and I guess I've heard that before. It's one of those things where I'm like, well, that's yeah, maybe I I don't want to go into that too much or whatever. I don't I don't want to deconstruct Christmas, but uh, but they've actually been hearing this at church, and I think that's that's kind of what made me go, ah, I maybe I've been making my own assumptions about the text that aren't there that the culture gave me or that nativity scenes gave me. So what? How does he deal with the timing of when they show up? Mm, I'm trying. Or is to that remember. a spoiler? <laughs> it may be a spoiler, which I would want to avoid. Um, I will say that because he strives to be biblical. And, and in scripture, you've got two parallel accounts of Christ's birth, Luke 2 and Matthew 2, but Matthew 2 is effectively a sequel because Matthew skips over the birth in Bethlehem itself and just has the wise men catch up when they're in a house. I believe it actually says a house in, mm-hmm. in Matthew 2. So it's some months after the child has been born, and then Luke actually has a narrative after the birth where Mary and Joseph are actually going into Jerusalem. And they meet Simeon the prophet and a prophetess named Anna, both of whom have been expecting the Messiah. So presumably the wise men catch up to them after this, when they have moved back to Bethlehem and they're not in the stable anymore. Because, okay. I mean, who's going to spend months there? You know, they must have rented a place or were staying with relatives. After all, it was Joseph's family connections that brought him back to Bethlehem for the census. So he, he, does, he does address the timeline. Uh, we, we don't actually see him born in the stable or shepherds running around. So this whole thing is just from their perspective. Yes. It's not like going back and forth. Absolutely. Okay. No, no. Our viewpoint character really all throughout cool. is Myrid, uh, the, the hero of the story. That's neat. Because that, um, my wife was reading a book recently about, I think it was about uh, the time of Abraham, but then also a modern day archaeologist. This is a book by Jerry Jenkins. And it, ah. and it goes back and forth in time. And she was like, this was really interesting because it really ties these two times together. But but you're also jumping back and forth. So this is really neat that this book stays in one person's shoes and, and perspective and kind of culture rather than just saying, Oh, by the way, you know, Jesus was born because we know that like, but we want to know who these other people were. Exactly. So what was the star of Bethlehem? I think that's the big question on everyone's mind. Well, it was the tale of a comet or three planets coming together as I think actually the movie, the nativity story has the conjunction mainly because it looks so dramatic and you've got the idea of the, the three lights in the sky and mm-hmm. it's all biblical and symbolic. And I, I kind of like that version. Um, in, in this version, it's, it's none of those things. Oh, that's interesting. I guess since when I was in college, that's kind of the view I've adopted that it was the conjunction of uh, Jupiter, Venus, and the star Regulus. And there's a professor at my university that did a whole presentation on this using software that lets you see what the night sky actually looked like at any point in time from any place on earth. And he demonstrated that this actually happened in that part of the world at that time when Jesus was born. And so I think the movie actually used his research and it may not just be his research. It's, um, it's been going on for a while. But I've always wondered about that though, because it's like, well, Herod seems surprised by the star. Mm-hmm. You know, they take it for granted that, oh yeah, there's a star, of course. Even, um, you know, a chance alignment of these three lights in this super interesting, bright way. That's there could that could definitely be supernatural. 
but it almost doesn't satisfy me because it's like, why didn't they know? Well, it says, the wise men say in Matthew 2, they say, we saw his star in the east. So if it was okay. a conjunction, then this would have already happened. Now, I'm sure there's probably some uh, explanation as, as to if, if the conjunction idea is correct, then somebody may have done a word study. Does, what does we saw mean? Like, because I know that the, it seems to me like, well, the conjunction theory falls apart easily because they say we saw. So surely they have an explanation for that. I just don't have it in front of me. Mm. But you can't make a conjunction last the entire time that it would take a caravan to travel from the Persian region to uh, Jerusalem in right. first century Palestine. Right. The, uh, the Star of Bethlehem documentary talks about how you know, with, with planets, there's this retrograde motion that happens where they, they appear to wander. Like the first century people would have called them wandering stars yes. because they don't, they're not the fixed stars like in the Milky Way galaxy. They kind of go all over the place. And because of that, they would sort of stay in one part of the sky a little bit longer. Uh, but yeah, I've always wondered, well, how long could they have stayed together like that? So does this book have its own explanation for what that was it doesn't it does have a unique explanation for the uh, the effect of the star on whomever is seeing it okay i'll just leave it at that okay it, it doesn't even try to explain that astronomically and that's part of what uh, leads to the magic that i mentioned earlier is although there's plenty of thought put into you know the idea of a prophetic calendar left for these people by the prophet daniel which is extra biblical speculation, but you know, as we'll see in a moment, you know, may have some credence behind it. The star itself is kept in the realm of the wondrous. Yeah, it is something that is unexplained, and therefore has that effect on the reader. I'd say. Well, as you know, Stephen, one of my favorite verses is "He also made the stars" from Genesis one. Got that on a t-shirt. Yeah, and uh, I've often wondered: was this one of the reasons why? he made those stars was this astronomical event. Did he look all the way through history and say, that's when Jesus will be born. And so this is what I'm going to do with the stars. And he kind of wound everything up to happen right then. And, you know, and there, there's some people that might say, well, that's the only purpose for the stars is just for signs and wonders here on earth or for telling of seasons. As we were talking earlier before we started recording, I was reminded of this short story by Arthur C. Clarke called The Star. Ah, uh, yes. His take on it was that these astronauts go in search of what this was, and they find out that there had been this, um, basically a supernova that wiped out a whole civilization. And a Jesuit priest that's part of this group sort of has a crisis of faith about it. It's like, wait a minute, so God wiped out this whole star system and all its people just so we would have the Bethlehem star to send the Magi to visit Joseph and Mary. And you know, that, that's just a fictional take, right? We've never actually been there to, to know. And it, it's sort of like a depressing and maybe nihilistic take on it. But in, you know, in real history, we know that Herod uh, killed a lot of people uh, because of this event. And you know, some have even said, well, the wise men, it's the wise men's fault for kind of tipping off Herod about this. There is a lot of tragedy in the story, and I think that's something that kind of gets missed is that a lot of things happen around the star that aren't always great things. <laughs> and so it, it's just the biblical story itself is so full of drama. So I love that 
Carr is is taking that drama and really just unpacking it. But here's my next question: Why did the Magi connect a star with one born of one born king of the Jews? Like, how in the world did they come to that conclusion? Uh, that's more based on the idea, which is speculative. And Carr has uh, been inspired by uh, the teachings of a particular Bible teacher who believed that Daniel nine twenty four was referring to a specific time period of, quote, 70 weeks, end quote, that would lapse between an event and the time when God would put an end to sin and atone for iniquity. So the idea is not so much that they were expecting a specific star, but that they were expecting a specific date or a specific year. And then when this sign appears in the heavens, they think, oh, we are right. This is the direction that we are supposed to go. And again, this is speculation, but I would say that it is, it is biblical speculation. By that, we mean this is imagining events either in an alternative world or even in this world, in the past, present, or future, that are limited and therefore set free by that limitation by believing in the Bible and believing that it's history where it means to be history and that everything written there was inspired by God for our benefit, for our joy as we understand the gospel. So we believe, sort of going forward as a guiding principle of Lorehaven and of the Fantastical Truth podcast, that when you follow the Bible, you're not constrained and pinned down in terms of your imagination. You're actually set loose. Just like if you were to make a story with a character who could do anything, uh, that's actually not a very fun character, because therefore there's no limits on him it doesn't make anything interesting anymore. Well, now, now you're getting into a good theology of imagination. Which yeah, that'll is, be a future podcast for yeah, sure. We'll definitely do that because, uh, you know, so much of, well, we'll get into this later, but so much of storytelling now is about serving a cause and it's just, it's been driving me crazy lately, but. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll, t- we'll get talk um, about um, that um, different episodes about that one. Yeah. Uh, anyway, if you want to <laughs> hear more about that speculation and, uh, you know, Patrick W. Carr, uh, drawing from the research of uh, Bible teacher Chuck Missler, you can get a lot more about that in that uh, cover story at Lorehaven Magazine uh, that we've mentioned before. Okay, so I got to poke you a little bit with this. So the seventy weeks, I know there's the premillennial kind of viewpoint that that seventy weeks extends to you know the end times basically, and it describes some of that. And then there's the what is it called the preterist or amillennial view that. That, that that all took place uh, you know, in the first century. Then there's the post-millennial view, which is totally different. We'll get to that later. Is this, uh, is this teaching by Missler, does it fit in one of those categories? I haven't read the teaching itself, okay. frankly. But oh, that's fine. And one of my little minor New Year's resolutions, by the way, is to finally nail down my end times perspective. <laughs> As of yet, I just want to skip straight to Revelation 21 through 22 and just let what happened happen before then. Uh, just read Revelation, wrapping up the Bible in one year reading plan. Yay! Uh, and I still don't have a, an end times view, so well, I'm sure. We, well, let's let's get to some end times discussion in those. Uh, let's have let's have 2020 well. vision about this, Stephen. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Never heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, but that I think that'll be another topic for another time about the because we, uh, we're I making think, all kinds of promises here, yeah, there, brother. I think a lot of our listeners let's are familiar them. with the left behind series, but there's a whole other series called the lamb among the stars, which Ah, is a very opposite view of the end times, but it's very, very speculative and fun. Let's get back to the story. How many wise men were there? Cause I, you know, our title is the three wise men. Uh, that's what we always see, but it's, it's in all the songs. Yeah. Or three Kings. If you prefer the the songs have got to be right. 
Absolutely. So, so how many were there? Well, Patrick W. Carr actually has it both ways a little bit. I, I almost, I, I think if he, if he meant this as a solution, uh, it's rather ingenious, I think. And I almost don't want to spoil it, especially if it is intentional. Uh, either way, let's say that there are more wise men than that, because after all, the story is about multiple different magi uh, who are basically just counselors so to the, the king. of many. Right. Yeah. There, well, there are, there, there is... There are eventually three, uh, I will say that, but okay. there are more than that because it's, it's kind of more like a, a social class. They're, they're almost more like professors or court counselors. And in this case, they're in the, the Parthian Empire. They're basically consultants to the king. You get rank, you get privilege, and there's also social expectations and kind of code of conduct. For example, uh, magi don't tell a lie. And that figures into the story a few times. That's it's like they're absolutely supposed to be above board and honest at all times. We've talked about just the constraints that Carr puts on himself to make this as biblical as possible, especially using a lot of theological research, not just his own opinions or whatever. But how would you say this compares with other biblical fiction you've read? It's good. It's it's really good. I, I haven't read a whole lot of sub-biblical fiction, not because I think it's dangerous to me, but just because I, I don't see a whole lot of benefit to that. Other well, what than, do you mean by sub-biblical? Well, I don't know if that's the official term, but uh, for example, I suppose that the stereotypical example would be uh, the movie, the at least the movie most people think of, The Last Temptation of Christ. Okay. That has its defenders, but it also had a big old boycott back in the 90s because Christians got wind of the fact that this uh, savior, I think, played by Willem Dafoe in a movie directed by... Um, Martin Scorsese. William Defoe was in that. I believe. I believe he was. Yes. Oh Can you imagine <laughs> the Green Jesus Goblin sounding like the Green Goblin <laughs> or Volko from Aquaman? How did I not know that? That's Supposedly, surely, about twenty-five years ago, he would have sounded a bit mellower, perhaps. But anyway, <laughs> it, if you want more impressions, no, I want more impressions. I, I got a few, and my younger brother has even more. But no, I, at least the rumor about this movie—I haven't seen it, so fair warning. The rumor is that it took the story in a completely d- different direction and imagined what would happen if Jesus had not gone to the cross. Okay. And at least what I had heard is that it then circles back to finish that, but it like does this whole alternate scenario and got a lot of people upset. And I can understand because when you're dealing with the Bible, Christians believe that this is the story of stories. It is absolutely right. true. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And especially when you get into details relating to the gospel, whose pivotal event is the arrival of Jesus personally, God and man put together in the world on mission to live the perfect life and die and raise to life again. That's important. You don't want to get that wrong. And I've been happy to see that usually when Christians, talking about Christians in in America making Mm -hmm. stories, when they get to the Jesus story, they overall seem to really want to treat that with respect. Yeah. Um, the last example I saw of that was a movie called Risen, uh, which is a really good film about a Roman soldier who investigates the disappearance of Christ's body from the tomb. Um, and then once again, I'll have to talk about The Chosen, which is a new streaming drama from director and creator Dallas Jenkins yeah, just started this year. You have to get that. I think if you try hard, The Chosen is in continuity with The End of the Magi. So Oh. What's nice is that some of these stories can be in continuity with one another. If so he, uh, Dallas Jenkins based? No, I mean. Chuck Missler's? No, no, or... no, not at all. What I mean is just the, the fictionalization is in continuity. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so you, you can do that with some of these uh, biblical adaptations and just imagine, oh, they're all in the same uh, cinematic universe. Yeah. 
Um, he, he also follows the similar philosophy is, okay, we're going to fictionalize some things like the backstories of certain biblical figures like Nicodemus or the Apostle Peter or Mary Magdalene. But when it comes to actually dealing with the areas of their life that intersect with the narrative in the Gospels, we are going to stick with the Gospels. Yeah, just make it as faithfully rock, as rock possible. Solid. Exactly. You know, I, what do you think of Ben-Hur? Have you seen that? The original. Oddly yeah. enough, I have not seen. It is so strange because I own it and everything. That's right. They remade it. And I know, well, I know yeah. the story from start, the original one with um, Charlton Heston. Now, I, I've seen enough clips to make me feel like I've seen it. So I'm in that uncanny valley or yeah. you know, Schrodinger's viewing of the movie. I've, I've kind of seen it and not seen it. But I, I have seen the remake, which, which was all right. I've seen the original only. And there were some interesting intersections of, of Ben-Hur and Jesus. and. Uh, it was, it was surprising, but it didn't really throw me off too much. I may not be remembering it very well, but I, I, w- I remember feeling pleasantly surprised and how they intersected with the life of Jesus. I did not feel that way with, I still remember this movie ABC came out with and called Jesus 2000 that came out in the year 2000. And Everything was 2000, right, in the year 2000, at 2K. Gateway 2000, the computer <laughs> company, yes. And now we're living all that again with 2020. But Oh, um, that's true. But Jesus 2000 had Jesus getting baptized, and then John the Baptist says to him, you need to confess your sins first. And Jesus said, okay. No, that's not how that works. And I'm just like, wait a second, that completely changes the story. That's not how you Bible. And I remember watching it with this student who's from the Middle East. And actually, it offended him even more than me. Well, even though they don't believe that Jesus was the ultimate prophet, right. if he was a, a member of Islam. Right, because yes. he said, wait a minute, Jesus, uh, the Quran even teaches that he's sinless. What are you and talking about? That's true. About? He is a prophet and just and not so the last one. It was this weird moment where we were both upset at this movie for not portraying Jesus accurately. Even though we came from very different backgrounds, we both knew, hey, wait, this is garbage. Well, at least it's promoting interfaith harmony. Right. <laughs> so, so something good coming out of it. Yeah, there we go. Silver lining. Well, in, in this case, I mean, I, I have some high expectations of, of all fiction, just as, as both a fiction fan and as a, a biblical Christian. You know, my expectations, if you're going to go into the biblical territory thematically and in terms of your historical setting and themes, it has to be biblical, must not contradict God's word. Um, the, one, the one little asterisk there, the one disclaimer was, I'll make allowance if you want to shift around some events. For example, you know, I would not get super bothered if you had in the movie or the novel Jesus do something where in the Bible it seems that, oh, well, this actually came in a later stage of his ministry. You know, uh, If you shuffle those events around, I actually think that you're on pretty solid ground given the fact that the gospel writers themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they, they, they also yeah. seem to do that. And, and that's because the genre allows that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's only if you come to it with, well, this has got to present linear history, you know, one, two, three, four, and five. Like, well, that's unfair to expect that of the Gospels because sometimes they're grouping miracles together or John will take a bunch of his teachings and put them together because they are thematically similar. It's still history, but it's more like you're watching a movie and you skip ahead to one event and, or then there's a flashback or something like that. And that's just part of the genre there. Uh, my second expectation of biblical fiction, you have to make the character seem real. Um, even if you've never seen that, like the stereotypical cheesy movies that seem to show Jesus floating over the ground, he never gets dirt under his fingernails. You know, he's just 
all spiritoid god and not man enough. You know, whereas, spiritoid. That that's that's going in the uh, the uh, dictionary. That's that's, that's that's one one of my little made up words. At least I think it's made up. <laughs> anyway, like I, I haven't actually seen any of the stories, but the way that some Christian critics talk, I like I know they're out there somewhere because we're, we're always talking about how you know that they they've been made and you know they weren't good. They're kind of gnostic and such. Uh, and the end of the Magi is not like that. Even the good guys have their flaws. Uh, going back to our main question, you know, the Magi may have some flawed expectations about what to expect from a Messiah, which of course itself is based on biblical precedent when Jesus is constantly trying to steer the apostles away from imagining a conquering king. Mm-hmm. You know, they were taking all of the trendy prophecies about the conquering king Messiah and they were accidentally skipping over the suffering servant parts. Well, and that's just one thing. I mean, you you look at how often the Gospels and in Acts that the disciples, the apostles, they they really messed up. And then you just look at the major heroes of the Bible, like King David. You know, need I say more? <laughs> oh yeah. You know, and, th- and that really is the story of the Bible. It's that only God is perfect. You know, like Jesus, Jesus even said, only God alone is good, and and He was, He is God. Yeah, I mean, you really can't have a biblical story without showing biblical characters struggling with sin, being redeemed from sin, not being God, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you there. Oh, that's what leads into my third expectation of, of good, fantastical, biblical fiction, is it doesn't just portray the Bible story as an isolated narrative but in some way also captures, at least in part, if not the whole, of the big story of the Bible. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the protagonist, he is the hero, and he saves his enemies from evil. That's the plot right there. The end of the Magi gets this, and especially if you're going to have a Bible or a a biblical fiction that is about Jesus, for crying out loud, you cannot have a story about Jesus without also having the gospel. People might say, well, that's too overt, and you know, you might come well, across as preachy. It, it's yeah. Jesus. He's the preacher of preachers. You you he have to go there, right? It's like, we're going to do a story about Jesus, but man, can we just have a little less Jesus in there? That would make no sense. You've already established by the rules that you're going to have the gospel in there, because Jesus is the one who brought us the gospel. You may as well expect to have a book without words. Have you read the Jesus Storybook Bible? By the Parts way? of it, yes. We actually own that. Okay. Yes. I, I love that book because um well you know we, i just mentioned king david the david and goliath story it, it's so fun to read that and look at the illustrations but the the point of that story in the jesus storybook bible is one day there would be a rescuer that would rescue us from the you know the giant of sin and death and every chapter sets that up it has something like that that there would one day be a hero or a rescuer even greater than this hero exactly which is Goodness, it's such what we need, and not just like you can conquer your giants or you can put out a fleece. And you know, we we take so much of the Old Testament and make it about us when it's really pointing to Christ and He's the fulfillment, not you know whether I get a raise at work or something. But I, I love that book for how it continually puts that focus on Christ. So that's great to see that this book does that. That makes me really want to read the book. <laughs> oh, definitely. Okay, so here's just some other random questions I had. Why do we like this idea of seeing into the future or, or having you know, a prophecy fulfilled that we've been looking forward to and now we see it and we feel like, what is that about human nature that likes that? 
Well, suppose it would be at our best, it would be a mixture of motives. If we like seeing into the future for good reason, it's because God is outside of time and has set the example of telling us what to expect. And so we can anticipate that he will fulfill those promises. For Jews in the first century, if there was ex- expectation of a Messiah, it's because God told them to expect the Messiah. It was his idea to forecast the future. It wasn't, wasn't something sinful they were doing. Now, the problem, of course, came when they were getting confused at best, and they were elevating certain set of the Messianic prophecies and not the other. Although, honestly, even just looking back now, I kind of don't blame them a whole lot just because of where they were. You know, if you're being oppressed and all of that, then yeah, you're going to err on the side of the verses that talk about you being set free from your physical oppression. But Christ's first coming was mainly to deal with the oppression of sin, of their deadness in sin, uh, and the fact that uh, laws and sacrifices pointed to him as the solution rather than uh, the salvation mm-hmm. in, the, in and of themselves. So that's the, that's the good reason, but I, I guess the, the negative reason would be to feel powerful, to feel in control. Uh, there's a reason that God warned his people in Deuteronomy 18 not to try controlling their lives with occult practices Mm -hmm. and false guarantees of a good harvest or that you'd have lots of children. Those were bad and sinful means of trying to predict the future. Uh, The Bible strongly warns against divination where you're looking at entrails or burning incense in a certain way or whatever the practices were to try to divine the future, to predict the future apart from God. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 18, God then says, the reason why I'm telling you not to do these things is because I'm sending a final prophet. You're going to listen to him. So God rules out the nonsensical, evil ways that people try to predict the future, and then he predicts the future, and his prediction is the final prophet, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Well, you think about, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, all the different examples in our culture of where we try to predict the future, everything from the election, the election betting on sports games, the election again, <laughs> yeah, that never that never gets old. The election uh, after this election, right. yeah, and then I, you know, I think of this. There, there's this combination happening with the Magi that they're predicting the future with the star that they. Well, oh, sorry, going back to the seventy weeks, right? That's kind of their framework. And then it all leads to the star, which leads them to a king. And that's sort of a universal desire there too, that, you know, the Israelites wanted a king to be like the other nations, but then they got Saul. And we've probably seen that play out in our country and I'm not going to name names. You could probably find a president you don't like and he'll apply. Say, say he, yeah, that's, that's depending a, on how another, far in the future you're listening to this, she'll apply another King Saul exactly. right there. Uh, a lot, lot of King Saul's run for office. I, I feel like there's a certain amount of narcissism that just goes with the job title. Oh, exactly. Uh, Even for a very good right. leader, there's going to be a streak of narcissism there. Otherwise you would not subject yourself to that. Right. Even in the best possible scenario in this book, do the Magi have some sort of culture that revolves around seeing into the future or predicting the future, or was it just no. with this Daniel prophecy? No, and, and that, that, that actually would, would bring up you know, some of the conceptions we have in our heads, possibly based on beautiful illustrations, you know, where there's a group of men in fine robes, and there's gold everywhere and silk everywhere, lots of red, lots of purple, lots of gold, of course, 
you know, and I think even in the movie, the nativity story, you have these three men who are in this, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings style environment where they actually have, you know, actually it's more like the astronomy tower in Harry Potter and all these little spinning things around each other. Yes. The reflecting pool and, you know, uh, this is, uh, this is a little different, you know, Uh, think of, I mean, it's their advisors to the King who have a prophetic calendar. And in fact, they don't do a lot of astronomy as I recall. And they do absolutely no astrology. Oh, interesting. You know, astronomers study the stars. Astrologers study the stars and try to make predictions based on their movements. Yeah, so, neither so one really like goes on much. This is like the only star-related thing that they do. Exactly. Oh, that's. I mean, they're familiar with the stars, like anyone of the era would be. You know, they they oh. know where the constellations are, and so they know um, this wasn't there before. Yeah, but well, that's all. They would they would obviously see a lot more of them without all the light pollution we have now. Right. Not a lot of telescopes uh, going on in the story. Okay, so we, we've used the term fantastical fiction because we are the Fantastical Truth podcast. So is biblical fiction fantastical fiction? Yeah, someone actually asked this question after the magazine came out, and I knew to expect it because of the stories that we've done, let's see, our debut issue of spring 2018 of the magazine, we had James L. Rubart on the front, and he had written a story that contained some light fantastical elements, uh, like you know, a, a man had gotten amnesia, and you know, his before that, his marriage had been falling apart, so he wasn't sure what was going on. Uh, there's a lot of uh, spiritual guidance and sort of things that are going on in there. Definitely contemporary, yeah. yes. Not a fantasy world. I mean, you know, he was, he was a football player. No, yeah. definitely not. I would say it's it's very light on the fantasy elements, mm-hmm. but just enough to qualify. Now. How far do we push that? For example, uh, if there's a Amish story where a character falls asleep and believes that she wants uh, to believe that God is telling her to leave her community, is it a fantasy novel? I don't think so, because we believe that God in some ways does sometimes break into reality, even now, to do something miraculous or providential. And I'd say there's a difference. A providential thing is like a you know timing, like you just happened to get a raise at work right before you had a big medical expense. I'd call that providence and not a miracle, but it's still God moving. Either way, in this case, I would say that it is fantastical just because of the star. The star itself is is like a pivotal miraculous intervention. Of course, the incarnation is a pivotal miraculous intervention. God became man, the second person of the Trinity became incarnated. He was real. He had skin and bones and a beating heart and a digestive system. Jesus, baby Jesus filled his diapers or whatever the equivalent is there. Um, we won't get too detailed there because we still don't want to disrespect our Lord, but it was real and it was physical. There's also just the Christmas connection I mentioned earlier. Christmas is the most fantastical time of the year oh, absolutely! and there's lots of secular magical stories associated with that too so you can get into some of that but just for those reasons i felt yes this this story is fantasy enough mm-hmm. to include in the magazine and we would make those decisions later on as well if you have kind of a light fantasy story like a, a christian social drama like james l rubart's book was uh, or a biblical fiction story that is heavy on the miraculous like this one well, that's such a great point that the star really is all by itself. That is fantastical because it's either what I said, it, it's, you know, or what, what my professor in college said, which is God wound up the universe 
so that this conjunction of stars would happen at this specific moment in time. If, if it was a conjunction, yeah. yeah and that's, so that explanation, by the way, would rely a little bit more on providence. Sure, but that's still mm-hmm. supernatural that God is, knew yes. before history began how it would how it would turn out because he's in he's in control of it. But you know, I think there's something about that explanation that's always sort of bothered me, which is we have no problem accepting the incarnation. So why do we have a problem accepting that the Bethlehem star was something totally supernatural? You, you can get into a lot of apologetics discussions with people and they're like, well, I'm, you know, I can accept that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but not that he came back to life. It's like, wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> you well, know, first, you're starting already with is... the incarnation. It's like, there's, you know, there's some supernatural event that you take for granted. So what, you know, why does another one bother you? I, I don't know. Well, you also are operating in a world where it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right. which in terms of scale <laughs> is already the most miraculous incident event ever. You've got the creation of the entire cosmos and expanding universe oh, yeah. and every single physical law operating to I make mean, it there, happen. There's, th- this is my hobby i love to learn about astronomy i wouldn't call myself even an amateur astronomer but that's a great point that god made all of this so what does it matter that he made one more star (laughs) like because he made everything out of nothing anyway it's not like he just took another universe and just plopped it in this one right in terms of the pure physicality of it resurrecting a person is no big deal exactly that is actually one of god's smaller miracles the incarnation a considerably greater deal God in the second person of Jesus became a real living, breathing human man, who by the way is still human and yet still God today. I would say though that the greatest miracle of all was reconciling God's need to enforce justice against spiritually dead sinners and yet also show mercy to those people. And that's of course what God does, has has accomplished in the person of Jesus. Absolutely. That's been a great discussion. I can't wait to read this book. I love Christmas time. It's been always been a fun time in my family. I mean, a, a, just a fun memory of when I was a kid. My cousin and I laid out a trap for Santa Claus because we thought if we can trap him, it's a trap. We'll get more presents, like he's a leprechaun or something. I don't really know where we got that uh, idea. You can hold him hostage with the Nerf weapon Santa brought go. you last year. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, speaking of turn, turn up the fireplace. Speaking and, of people rebelling against the uh, the gift giver. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's. It, I've always gone all in with Christmas, whatever the the thing is, but I just, I love the the Christmas songs. I love singing a holy night. That's I, I can't really sing, but I love singing that song. Um, so I love that this book really explores that world more and lets you see more of the story that's going on behind the scenes. Cause you, you've always wondered like, who are these guys and where do they come from and how do they know about the star? So this sounds great. I think it's all the time we have, but um, Stephen, this has been a great first episode with you. And if you're listening to us, we would love for you to subscribe to the show. Go to lorehaven.com and subscribe to our magazine and read lots more great reviews like you heard at the beginning. And check out our website uh, for articles that deal with fantastical truth. And it's our part of our website called Speculative Faith. So we're all part of the Lorehaven system. The, the what do we call it? This I would say Lorehaven is the star around which these other worlds rotate. There we go. That, that's a better 
better term than cinema. I was going to say cinematic universe, but it's like a I worked the star in there. That's that's our theme go. here. Okay, Stephen, what else can you tell us? Well, speaking of the website, in our next episode, we will explore a big question we hear a lot: are circling around the Lorehaven star system. Christian fantasy fans just apparently will keep asking this question: What do we mean when we say it's a Christian story? Uh, Christians in or out of our star system ask this question a lot about the Christian label, especially if we enjoy art and imagination. We just keep coming back to the question of, should we apply this label to the movies and music and novels and stories that we make, or should we leave it off? What does the label mean? A lot of people say, well, we've got to have the label because they think it represents a seal of quality, as it were. You're going to get the gospel here. You're going to get family-friendly content, that sort of thing. Other people can't stand the label because they actually think that it's a seal that guarantees lack of quality, either shallow theology or poor craftsmanship. Both sides have some points, and both sides could stand to listen to the other side. So I come down on a particular side. I'll be interested to see what side you come down on. And of course, we'd love to hear from our readers about that. But we will explore as much of that topic as we can with as much grace and truth as we can in that next episode. Godspeed and thank you so much for joining us to seek and find fantastical truth.